Rob Hooper knew that what I was intending to preach about today, so yesterday he called me and called my attention to an article in the Herald Times that was included this past Thursday. I don't know if you all saw it. It was a story about a local church and their adventure that they participated in in giving away $100,000. I'm sorry, $10,000. They had $10,000 to give away. It was given to the church as a gift for that purpose. And so they took 100 of the members of the congregation and they gave them $100 each. And they were to find someone to give this money away to, someone in need. And the rules were that you had to give it to someone who was not a part of your family, and you had to give it to someone who was not a part of the church. And so the entire church participated in this exercise. And I must say that uh, by their testimony, it has strongly affected them. And any time I have ever seen people participate in mercy, it has always had an effect on their lives. And mercy is what I intend to preach about this morning. What is mercy? What is mercy? Mercy includes forgiveness shown. Mercy includes compassion. Mercy provides relief, prevents unpleasant situations. Mercy eases in times of distress. Mercy has two immediate and obvious results. Mercy includes unmerited kindness. And mercy includes forgiveness. When John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask if he were really the Messiah, what, what message did Jesus send back? Do you remember? What message did he send back? He said, tell John this. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The mark of authenticity that Jesus communicated to John was the ministry of mercy foretold by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 35 and in Isaiah 61. Jesus' acts of compassion included the preaching of the gospel. There was no separation between word and deed in Jesus. And later, if you'll turn to our text in Matthew 25, you see Jesus talking about mercy at the time of the judgment. If you'll read with me, Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as the, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? 
And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to talk about mercy. And obviously you see some of the characteristics of mercy outlined in the scripture that I've just read. Clearly Jesus' expectation of those blessed of his Father will be a practical lifestyle of compassion. We must say that God expects his mercy to produce fruit. At Matthew 18, you, you see the parable of the slave who received mercy and then was unmerciful. Do you remember what the, the master did to the unmerciful slave? He made him pay for everything he had done. James 2 says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, there's a question that comes to my mind as I read this passage in Matthew 25 that I think we have to deal with before we would go on in talking about mercy, particularly the attributes of mercy. And that is the question of whether or not our acts of mercy save us. What about forgiveness? It is an act of mercy, isn't it? And after teaching his disciples to pray, Jesus said to them, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And as I just read in James 2, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do my merciful acts or my forgiveness save me or contribute to my salvation? If I give money to United Way and I don't kick my dog and I volunteer for the adult literacy program, will that be enough? What if I do all of those things and I believe in Jesus? I believe that Jesus existed. Will that be enough? The problem in thinking this way is that It's wrong for us to associate anything we do with the word enough surrounding our salvation. It's wrong for us to associate anything we do with the word enough. What is it that we've all done enough of, after all? What have you and I done enough of? Sin. We've all sinned enough. According to the scripture, Galatians 
Only one sin is enough. It only takes one. And we've all done enough sin. Many people believe their particular works win the merit with God toward salvation. But our works are the wrong kind of enough. They are the enough that condemn us. Our salvation does not rest on whether or not we have done enough. Our salvation rests on the fact that Jesus has done enough. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And Paul was talking about this subject in Philippians 3, talking about himself, and he said, Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The righteousness of faith. It is clear from Scripture that our salvation is completely a gift from God. And while the doctrine of faith alone, or sola fide as the Reformers called it, demands its own set of sermons, I only want to speak this far about this today so that we can look more specifically about the, the subject of the attributes of mercy and compassion. But we must know that our acts of mercy do not contribute to our salvation. We are saved as a gift from God by faith. Compassion and forgiveness are expected from all men, but they are only truly exhibited in the household of faith. They are the effect of God's long-planned action. They are clearly in anticipated in the church because mercy begets mercy. Just prior to the verses I read in Ephesians 2, prior to verse 8, starting with verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The richness of God's mercy poured out upon us precedes the doing of the good works that come later in verse 10. Those works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. You see this idea of mercy begetting mercy in the account of the woman who ministered to Jesus in Luke chapter 7. 
If you remember the story, Jesus went to one of the homes of the Pharisees to dine. And as he entered the house, there was a woman in there who was a notorious sinner. And when Jesus sat down at the table, this woman came and she brought this jar of perfume and she poured it on his feet. And she wet his feet with her tears. And she kissed his feet and she anointed them with perfume. And the Pharisee that invited Jesus to his home looked at Jesus and he said, Don't you know who this is? Don't you know who this woman is? Don't you know what she's done? And Jesus said, Simon, I have something to tell you. A moneylender had two debtors, one owing him a great deal and one owing him not so much. And the moneylender went to the debtors and he forgave them both. Which of the two loved him more? And Simon said, well, the one who was forgiven more. And then Jesus applied it to what had just happened in his own home. He said, you know, I came into your house. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't provide me any comforts. But this woman, who this, this woman that you refer to as the sinner, she came and she wept over my feet. She poured perfume on them. She dried them with her hair. Her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. And he turned to the woman and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And just as a matter of reference, he did not say, Your, your uh, act of compassion has saved you. He said at the end, Your faith has saved you. But he tells her, Her sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Mercy begets mercy. Matthew 25, which we just read, clearly marks the importance of Christ's bride exhibiting his own attributes. What should mercy in the church look like? Mercy should have several attributes, and I'm going to uh, look at five this morning. So five attributes of mercy is what we're going to be uh, talking about this morning. Mercy should be practiced, exercised, so that it will develop. And mercy generally begins with little things. Now, I'm not a big fan of the lottery. Do we have a lot of lottery fans here? You wouldn't raise your hand, would you? But I hear people talking about the lottery quite often, and the, the interesting comment that they say is, well, you know, if I won the lottery, if I were to win the lottery, I would do this and this and this and this. There's always something in there about I would give away a bunch of it to charity. You've heard people say this, haven't you? I'll give away a bunch of it to charity if I should win the, lo the lottery. And that always makes me smile a little bit because I know a lot of people who play the lottery and I know a lot of people who don't play the lottery. And I know that the people who don't play the lottery tend to be charitable and I know that the people who play the lottery, lottery tend to be less charitable in their lives because they have a different systems for appreciating money and their responsibility for it. When we learn and practice mercy, it has to be disciplined. And it has to begin with little things. 
and grow. Was Jesus incapable of telling someone to sell all that they had and give it to the poor? We know that he was capable of that. We know that he did tell a rich young man to do just that. But he was doing this to determine and to show and to define in the man his allegiance, whether or not he loved God more or money more, and not primarily to teach him how to be merciful. A more patterned understanding of our stewardship is found in the parable of the servants with the talents. And that parable, coincidentally, comes just before the account we read of the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. The gist of the parable is that if we are faithful with small things, we are entrusted with greater things. Mercy must be practical. It must be exercised. We have people in this church who practice mercy regularly, and they encourage me, and they prod me on to follow their example. But I would bet that they did not learn to practice at their present level of mercy overnight but they were disciplined to be merciful. I know of a church that built its ministry with mercy as a primary focus. And they started off, this was their mercy um, discipline at the beginning. They started off by washing people's cars for free. It's an interesting thing because if you've ever been at a place where they were washing people's cars for free, you get an insight into the kind of uh, person that we've turned into in this country, this self-sufficient, I will not receive anything for free kind of a person. Because I've actually seen people argue trying to make people take money when they were going to wash their car for free. And this church would do that. They would set up a... a car wash at a gas station, they would get permission and they would wash people's cars for free. And that was how they started off. They had about 40 people, I think, at that time. And they would wash cars and they started adding other little mercy ministries is what we called them. They started adding those other little mercy ministries to the agenda and they would wash windshields of cars at the self-service station. And as they would watch, they would tell people, you you know, people would ask naturally, well, why are you doing this? And if you want an invitation to talk to somebody about Jesus, that's a good invitation. Why are you doing this? So they would wash windshields. And then they got into uh, cleaning people's toilets in public restrooms. And then they started finding old people who needed light bulbs changed in their homes. So they started the light bulb changing ministry and they started going into people's homes and changing their light bulbs. And they just started developing a a ministry to the poor. And they bought an old bus and they drove it down to a, a poor section of town and they loaded up full of groceries, I should say first, full of groceries and clothes. They took it down to a poor section of town. They just went through the projects and invited people to come into the bus. And then as they came into the bus, they carried the food back to their to their apartments with them. And they asked them if there was anything they could pray for them about. And they, they talked to them about Jesus in that context. Just about, I want to say, seven or eight years ago, that church uh, had grown to the point where they couldn't use their present facilities, so they, they were building some new facilities 
And uh, as they were ready to move into their new facilities, they had a church that needed a facility. I guess they were negotiating with uh, selling their uh, existing, their, their old facility too. And they decided, well, you know, why not just give them the church? So they just gave it to them. Now, I guess that church was worth about a million dollars on the north side of Cincinnati, right out the Beltway. And they just gave it to them. Did they start off their ministry by building donation programs? No, they didn't. They didn't start off by giving away church buildings. They started off by washing cars. That's what they started with. They started being faithful with little things so that they could be entrusted with greater things. Mercy must be practiced. It must be disciplined. And it must begin with small things. And it must be tended so that it will grow into greater things. Secondly, mercy is personal. Mercy is personal. You know, there are two types of need that we encounter in our lives. And forgive me for the word I use to describe these, okay? Because it may mean something different to you, and I hope it doesn't offend you. But I call them the sanitized need and the unsanitized need. And the sanitized need is a need that I described as a hands-off type of need. A compassion where we give money for other people whose hands do the work. It is necessary. We have overseas missions that we give money to for others to do the work. We read in the scripture about Paul going to the churches and collecting money so that he could take it back for those who were starving in Jerusalem, right? To care for the brothers. We even have in town here a kind of a hands-off ministry for us, although we have some hands-on, some hands-off in Backstreet Mission where we give money, we give uh, uh, people give money, churches give money. We are included in that. We give money to Backstreet Mission, but you know we don't. All of us go over to Backstreet Mission and put our hands to the task. There are people at Backstreet Mission who do the primary uh, work that gets done over there. Now, hands-off ministries or sanitized needs can be negative if we justify ignoring the need that's at our doorstep by saying that we've already sent our support check. For this month, we can't ignore the need that's placed right before us. And so I have the second type of need that I call the unsanitized need. And this is hands on compassion, where our hands do the work, where we perspire under the yoke. Does everyone know what a yoke is? Not the yellow thing in the middle of the egg, although that's also a yoke. A yoke is something that they use when they use animals as as, uh, creatures of burden for pulling things. It's a big. Uh, apparatus that goes up onto the shoulders of the animals. There are even yokes that have been made for people who would pull things. And they sit on your shoulders and then they're harnessed to whatever you're pulling and the yoke is what you pull against to move whatever you're moving. Well, if we are going to be compassionate and merciful, we have to put the yoke upon ourselves. It has to be hands-on. In unsanitized mercy, we deliver the food to someone's home. We comfort the morning. We smell the filth and proceed to clean it up. We pour the water. We carry it to where the thirsty people are and we hold out the the cup for them to receive a drink. We risk our health by being among the sick. 
We overcome our pride by going into the prison. We hand over that bag of clothes for those children who need it. Our home becomes the haven for strangers. We open our mouths and confess the good news of Jesus Christ. According to the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we read this morning, which Wayne read as our scripture lesson, we saw the priest who passed by. And did you notice what it said? And you probably have, some of you, maybe some of you haven't. It says the priest passed by on the other side. And you can imagine from the description in the text that this man who had been robbed was pretty much beaten and pummeled and was probably a mess. And the priest didn't even want to get close. He passed by on the other side. The Levite came along, and what did he do? It says the same thing. He passed by on the other side. He was not going to touch or get involved in that unsanitized situation. But what happened with the Samaritan? What does it say about the Samaritan? It says, he felt compassion and he came to him. He went right over to him. It's a dirty job, this unsanitized mercy that we do with our own hands. It's a dirty... Excuse me, it's a dirty job. It was a dirty job for the Samaritan. This guy was covered in blood, probably mud. Who knows what else? And he took him and lifted him up and he treated his wounds and he put him on his own uh, beast to carry, to find a place for him to stay. Ruined his own clothing. He himself got dirty. If we do not personally address at least some of the needs God presents to us, we have to wonder if we have truly received mercy ourselves. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I was hungry, thirsty, naked. You fed me, give me drink, clothed me. Personally. Mercy must be personal. The third attribute of mercy this morning, mercy is never convenient. Mercy is never convenient. The Samaritan was just as busy as the others who passed by. Mercy isn't convenient because it, it involves self, self-denial. We have to deny ourselves, as Jesus said, if we're going to follow him and take up our cross daily. Mercy takes time, it takes energy, it takes money. Whose time and whose energy and whose money? What are time and energy and money? Well, in, in my book, time and energy and money equal life. My time is my life. My energy is my life. My money costs me my life. Mercy demands all three of these things from us. It demands our lives. And so it involves self-denial. Mercy is never convenient. Fourth, mercy must be practical. You know those, uh, those little ribbons that people wear on their shirts? Forgive me if you're wearing one this morning. The little looped ribbons. I get so tired of those because no one can really tell you what, it, what they all stand for anyway. You see people wearing them, and I don't know what they mean, but the color of them. They're all looped the same way. Jesus didn't say at the judgment, Come, you blessed of my Father, 
for I was hungry. And you wore a magenta stamp out hunger ribbon. He didn't say that, did he? Be careful of what people call compassion. He didn't say, I was homeless and you camped out on the courthouse lawn to raise awareness. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I was in prison and you, you bought a down with the death penalty bumper sticker and put it on your car. We can't be deceived by the systems and the schemes of the world around us that have no substance. I'm excited about the, the peanut butter drive because there's nothing more practical than peanut butter, I think, in the whole world. <laughs> I think it's is today the last day of that. Next week is the last day. Mercy has to be practical. It has to be practical. Last, mercy must not discriminate. Mercy must not discriminate. Now some of you may be saying, wait a minute, don't we have to be discriminating? What about people who would take advantage of our mercy? What about those people? And I'll qualify this. I'll, I will say, mercy isn't stupid. shouldn't be stupid. I'm not saying that mercy means running out and giving derelicts money so they can buy more alcohol and drugs and cigarettes. But it is saying, I will be merciful to the derelicts. I will be merciful to those people. I will not discriminate and say, I'll be merciful to this person because they look kind of clean, but I won't be merciful to that person because they're not so clean. When we give away time, energy, and money, we know that there will be times of unexpected loss because of those people who would be opportunists, who would take advantage of us. How did God handle the opportunists? Do you remember? How does God handle the freeloaders? Matthew 5 says... Uh, Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who was in heaven. For he causes his son to shine, son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only, those your, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our Father handles the ungrateful just as he handles the grateful. Perfectly. He gives them rain and sunshine and his mercy. And our mandate is to be just as he is. Perfect. Peter said to Jesus in Matthew 18, How many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? When do I start cutting him off, weaning him away from my forgiveness? When has he taken too much advantage of me? And what did Jesus say? Seventy times seven. As long as he comes to you, you forgive him. Jesus himself, in Luke 17, 
says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And a few verses later, he demonstrates this, I believe, in starting in verse 11. When he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? No one Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Now how many of you think that in the next verse it should say, And the other nine became lepers again? How many of you think that's what should be the next thing said? That's not what it says. Mercy must not discriminate. We have, we have God, our Father's example. We have Jesus, our Lord's example. That we must be merciful. Jesus was not opposed to feeding 5,000 people, or thousands more than that, at one setting. We know that a lot of those people came just for the bread, don't we? He even said it himself. At the Day of Reckoning in Matthew 25, Jesus assumes the role of all the recipients of mercy when he said, when he says, I was, I was, I was. And that's how we discriminate. Oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus. And we turn and we're merciful. Our church must grow in mercy and compassion individually and corporately. These are not optional attributes for us to have. We must begin with little things. They must be practiced, exercised, and developed. They must be both spontaneous and programmatic. And I must say that it has to be all of us. You know, uh, it doesn't say that uh, when, Jesus, when Jesus comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne and all the deacons will be gathered before him, does it? We think about mercy and we, we immediately think, well, that's the deacon's job. But it doesn't say all the deacons will be gathered before him. It says all the nations, each person. We must embrace the unsanitized need and be personally involved in compassion. We must expect inconvenience. We must look for practical ways to be merciful. And we must abandon the perceived safety of some of our discriminatory policies that we have now. I've seen compassion come from very, very desperate people. And it, it will ever change you. And you've probably seen this, or some of you I'm sure have. It will always change you if you see someone who is very desperate exhibiting compassion themselves. 
I remember in an instance where we were taking food into a project. And if you've been in the government projects before, you know that the buildings are pretty much all the same on the outside. And they're usually always the same temperature on the inside, which is very hot for some reason. Even in wintertime, they keep the windows open in many of them. And I remember going into this project. We walked in the door. We, we, as was our, uh, our practice, we would carry bags of groceries with us. Uh, we would knock. They would invite us in. We would say, look, we're just some Christians. We're giving away some groceries, wondering if you might need some groceries or you might know somebody who needs some. And I was in this house, in this apartment in the project, and this woman greeted us. We came in. We said the line, and I looked around, and what I saw was a stark room. It was empty. I think there were three or four children. She was holding one in her arms. The children were scantily clothed. I could see into the other room, the like kitchen dining area. There was no furniture. There was nothing sitting, no extra food sitting on the counter. I could see that this was truly an impoverished house. And we set our line. And this woman holding this baby looked at us and she said, You know, somebody brought me some food just yesterday. But I have a neighbor. And my neighbor is desperate. Would you be able to take that food to my neighbor if I took you over there? Now, when you meet somebody like that, and God presents you with that situation, and you see mercy in the midst of desperation, it will, it will always affect you. It will always change you. It will always help you to understand why we don't discriminate and why we must be willing to be compassionate with our lives. I want us to end thinking about this story and thinking about mercy begetting mercy in the life of this woman and thinking about Jesus' words in as much as you have done it to these the least, you have done it unto me. And I also want us to stop and think that, in fact, we are not much different from this woman. We're desperate, aren't we? I know I am. We're poor, or at least we should see ourselves as such. And we are in need of mercy. And thanks be to God, he has given us mercy. But we have to remember that mercy begets mercy.